I want to look at this text in Matthew 18, the gospel lesson, this morning under five headings. Don't worry, it's not that complicated. They're simple headings. There's an introduction, there's three scenes, and there's a conclusion. An introduction, three scenes, and a conclusion. The first scene is in verses 23 through 27, and then the next scene is in verses 28 through 31. And the third scene is in verses 32 through 34. And the conclusion's in verse 35. So there's an introduction, which is in verses 21 and 22. There's three scenes. There's a conclusion. Now, first the introduction. Just prior to this text, Jesus gives these well-known instructions on church discipline, on handling sin in the church. You remember, if your brother sins against you, go to him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If not, take two or three others. If he won't listen to them, tell it to the church. If he ignores the church, remove him from the fellowship. It may be that the first step in this process, the one where your brother sins and you go to him, he repents, the relationship is restored. It may be that that step has provoked a question in Peter's mind. And the question would be something like this. Well, how many times would I have to do this step one and forgive my brother? I mean, there was a current teaching of the rabbis, a rabbinical teaching which said, you must forgive your brother three times. And after that, on the fourth offense, there's no forgiveness for him. And so Peter, thinking he's being magnanimous, you know, rich in mercy, Peter decides to show Jesus what a large-hearted and generous guy he is. The rabbis say three, I will propose to the Lord forgiving my brother seven times. And this is what he asked in verse 21. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus is underwhelmed. He says, uh, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some, some Bibles here say 70 times seven, but it's unlikely that that's correct. This should probably read 77 times. 77, not 490. And the reason for this is, among other things, the text is echoing back to Genesis 4 where this bloodthirsty Lamech says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. And Jesus is doing a couple things here. The first thing he's doing, he's saying, the disciple of Christ must be as extravagant, extravagant in forgiving as Lamech was in taking vengeance. But he means even more. 77 is 7 times 10. Two numbers of completion and wholeness plus another 7. And so the idea of 77 is superabundant wholeness. Superabundant fullness. 
So this is the language of exaggeration, of hyperbole, not of mathematical precision. Right? The whole problem with Peter's question, from Jesus' point of view, is that Peter is a counter. He's a tabulator. He has a mental accountant working on his forgiveness balance sheet. He knows who he owes and he knows who owes him. He keeps track. He's a scorekeeper. Right? The difference between Jesus' reply and Peter's question is not about quantity or mathematics. Right? It's not quantitative. It's not 77 minus 7. It's qualitative. They're moving in two different orbits. Peter counts. Jesus forbids counting. And this means for Jesus, forgiveness is never to be withheld. Right? To, to read this parable, to read Jesus' reply to Peter and to ask, okay, I got it, 77 times. Does this mean that the 78th time I don't have to forgive my brother? Right? That, that would be to be making the same mistake as Peter. Now, I want to clarify something that might crop up here. It seems to always come up when we talk about forgiveness. There's a parallel passage to this parable over in Luke's Gospel. And from that parallel, we know that the discussion is about forgiving people who repent. So when I say that Jesus is teaching that forgiveness is to be limitless, the context leads us to take this to be true where there is repentance. Where there is repentance. In fact, in the parable itself, even God is going to rescind his forgiveness later on in the parable. But we'll get to that. For now, you should see this. These sorts of questions, you know, what about this case? What about someone who does this? What are the boundary conditions? Right? These are the questions of counters and tabulators. And they can distract us from the point. Jesus is saying to Peter, forgiveness is never, never to be withheld when it is sought. You need to stop setting an upper limit. Now this pronouncement of Jesus... It would be an absolute shock to Peter. You're just used to hearing this parable. Remember, the rabbi said three times, that's it. No need to forgive a fourth time. Peter goes beyond the rabbis. And Jesus says, look, you and the rabbis are playing on the small end of the pool. This makes Jesus sound like he came out of some crazy liberal rabbinical school. And so, because of that, the parable needs some further explanation. And that brings us to the second point, the first scene in the parable. And that starts in verse 23. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. A servant is brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent was the largest 
denomination of currency. It was measured in metal. 10,000 is the biggest word we have in the Greek language. And so this is a very, very large sum. It's intentionally exaggerated for effect. A talent was about 20 years' pay for a day laborer. So 10,000 talents is 200,000 years' pay. To give you an idea of how much money this is, the first century Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Herod collected about 900 talents annually from all of Judea in taxes. He collects 900 talents a year. This man owes 10,000 talents. The point here is simple. The debt is impossible to pay back. And so we, in verse 25, we see the servant couldn't pay. So the master orders that he and his family and his possessions be sold and payment be made. Selling oneself into slavery, or in this case being sold into slavery, was a common thing in the ancient world for excessive debt relief. But it's clear here in the text that this would do virtually nothing for the master. And the master's not going to get this huge debt back that he's owed. And the servant is quite unrealistic. In verse 26, he says, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. You know, we do not realize the debt we owe to God. We're much like this servant. Look, if you give me a little time, I think I can make this right. I think I can somehow square my account with God. Just be patient with me, and I'll pay back everything. There's a, a profound kind of cluelessness that this servant has about the immensity of his debt. His debt, even in his own terms, is 200,000 years' pay. And he tells the master, hey, give me a little more time. Right? We see this astonishing response of the master in verse 27. He has pity on him. Because we're genuinely pitiable. We need pity. The word for pity here is the word often translated compassion. It's that same great word used where Jesus looks out on, on the multitudes. He sees they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he's moved from the depth of his being. The text says he had compassion on them. And so it's out of this wellspring of compassion that the master far exceeds the servant's wildest dreams. He releases him from slavery and he forgives the enormous debt. The parable is, among other things, a picture of the Jubilee year. The favorable year of the Lord. The year when all debts are canceled, which has come in the ministry of Jesus and the forgiveness that he announces in the gospel. What we have here is the absolutely prodigal, scandalously promiscuous grace of God that goes beyond all calculation, all rights, all deserts. 
And this strikes at the heart of Peter's bookkeeping mentality. God has forgiven you, me, us, infinitely more than we will ever be called upon to forgive another person. And it's with that realization that all questions of forgiveness must be permeated. Questions of forgiveness are not adjudicated in the law courts. They're adjudicated on this ground, that God in Christ has pardoned you infinitely more than anything he asks you to do with respect to extending mercy or free forgiveness to one who has hurt you. It's because we lack this joy of being liberated. We don't sense that we're crushed under our debt of sin. And so we become arrogant or miserly toward other people. We operate out of law and not out of the grace of this gospel. So the second scene begins in verse 28. The second scene. The forgiven servant, he finds a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. It's about 100 days minimum wage. But the key point here is that this is one six hundred thousandth, one six hundred thousandth of what he owed his master. So again, the point really is clear. What he is owed, what anyone owes you, is insignificant in the light of the personal jubilee that we have received from the master. This is a key point to deliver us from bitterness, from counting, from a kind of restless gnawing in our souls. What we are owed, whatever it is by some other, is insignificant in light of the jubilee, the release that we've received in the gospel. And we're meant to see in this parable the sheer absurdity. I mean, the absurdity of compassion spurned in what happens next. He seizes his fellow servant. He begins to choke him and say, pay back what you owe me. And in verse 29, the servant falls down and he pleads with him in words identical to the words that he used with the master. Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Right, the redundant plea is meant to make us feel the horror of what's going on here. You know, this plea for patience, this one is actually reasonable. With some time and patience, this debt could be repaid. Nobody owes you or me an infinite debt. But the first servant's attitude will not allow any time or any patience or any rope at all. He has the attitude of strict justice. Even though he's been pardoned, he treats others with strict justice. And everybody loves to see justice done on somebody else. So he's not the king. But he, so he can't sell the man into slavery, but he can and he does throw him into a debtor's prison. 
in verse 30 until he pays. He's within his rights to do this legally. There's nothing illegal about it. He wants his money. He's going to get his money. And in verse 31, some fellow servants who obviously heard the story of the king's generosity toward the first servant, they saw what happened and they went and reported to the master everything that had taken place. And that leads us to the third scene. Now the master's back with the first servant again. He summons him in, verse 32, says, You wicked servants, I canceled all, all that debt of yours, that astronomical debt of yours. Have you forgotten the astronomical nature of your debt? Because when you do, then you treat other people harshly. We forget the astronomical nature of our debt. The master calls this man and says, I canceled all that debt because you begged me to. And notice he says in the text, and should not you. See, this is the language of necessity. It is not a nice gesture on our part to forgive others when they owe us something. It's a demand. Should not you. Mercy is required from us by God. It's perfectly coherent with justice. And it's a demand which, when unheeded, provokes the fiercest divine response. Mercy is never an optional thing. Should not you have shown mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? This is a costly parable. And let me remind you, this is an economic parable. We can forget that. Right? It's done in terms of actual money owed. Of course, it extends far beyond that. But the point is, this sort of forgiveness can have costly economic consequences. Recently, I received a phone call from a friend. He's a physician. He was in my church and uh, has moved to another state. My church in Tennessee subsequently moved to another state. And he called for some advice on a situation where he was in an economic venture with some other Christians who he felt clearly had defrauded him out of a large, large sum of money. And he knew he couldn't bring them to the civil courts and he didn't want to. And for various reasons, he had no recourse to the church courts. And the other party refused to admit any wrongdoing. And so my friend may be left with no options but to eat the loss. Now, as I mentioned, this parable is not strictly about the situation where no repentance is forthcoming. But I want to briefly address that since sadly that is often the case. What about the situation where the other party refuses to even admit any wrongdoing, as in my friend's case. Right, well, I don't want to quibble about words. Technically, my friend cannot forgive these people. Right, forgiveness implies the restoration of a loving, trusting relationship, reconciliation. But that doesn't mean the demands on him are not just as great as the demands in this parable. 
But because of what God has done for him in Christ, forgiving his enormous debt, he's not allowed to hate these brethren. He can't harbor bitterness or anger. He has to love them and pray for them and commend them to God's mercy. Jesus tells us to love even our enemies, to pray even for those who persecute us. Sure, he doesn't say forgive your enemies, but the inner substance, the readiness to forgive, the requirement to seek their well-being places much the same demand on us. So just to be clear, we are to pray for the Lord's mercy on those who remain unrepentant of the wrongs they've done to us. And in that way, we instill in ourselves the deeper attitudes that this text is trying to get at. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This text, in many ways, is about how you would like God to treat you when you stand before him. And the servant in this parable is about to find out that judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. James tells us that. So in verse 34, the enraged master delivers the unforgiving servant to the jailers. The word for jailers here, torturers. You know, it's well known and brutal fact of life that the ancient world, uh, powerful uh, political leaders, men like Herod, had torturers. And they would use these torturers to try and extract debts. See if the person had any hidden money or if someone in the person's family had money. And here, the servant's prior forgiveness, the jubilee that he received at the hands of the Lord, it is rescinded. And he's remanded, he's delivered over to the torturers until he should pay all the debt. And it's clear that he cannot pay, and so his punishment here is something of a picture of eternal judgment. Now a couple of points are in order. The parables, of course, they're not equations. And not every aspect of the king is meant to mirror God. God doesn't have torturers. God doesn't need to be informed by servants about what happened. But the main point is clear enough, isn't it? The main point is this. A terrible fate awaits those who are unforgiving. Nor are the parables systematic theologies. This text, if this was the only text you had, you'd, you could be led to assert that one could be forgiven and then lose that forgiveness. We would deny that on the basis of other texts. But even here, it's clear that this servant has not grasped. He's not appropriated the unbelievable reality of his own forgiveness in any meaningful way. But that's not Jesus' point here. Jesus is not trying to dot all the I's and cross the T's. There's something else I think that a sensitive reader gets when they read through this parable. You can feel something of the tension between this beneficent, gracious master who's obviously standing in for God in the parable at the beginning, who forgives this incalculable debt. And then that same master delivers the man over to torturers to pay that debt off at the end. 
know, God insists on the integrity of his mercy. What is happening here is God's giving the unforgiving servant what he wants. And he doesn't want mercy. He wants to stand on his rights. And so God's going to let him stand on his rights. He simply applies the same measure or standard to him that he applied to his debtor. Right? That's what Jesus says earlier in the gospel. With the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. This is what I said earlier about the fact that this parable is a lot, a lot of it is about how you would like to be treated by God on the day of judgment. Mercy is required, but when it's spurned, when it's spurned, God insists on its integrity and upholding it. Maybe an example would help here, I think. Let's say your son torches your house. He blows your cars up, commits identity theft, steals your life savings. In mercy and compassion, you forgive him because he begs you. He pleads with you. You forgive your son. And five minutes later, he's in his sister's room beating her, choking her because she ruined one of his baseball cards. What kind of a parent would simply overlook this? No parent could overlook that. You would probably do something analogous to what the master does here. You would make the son work to pay the debt that you had previously forgiven. He's clearly not learned the value of your forgiveness, and neither has the first servant. Finally, we get Jesus' conclusion in verse 35. And this is a sharp, biting conclusion. And if you haven't followed all this till now, then get verse 35 and get it clear. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Some NIV versions are slightly different, but that's the gist of it. So, beloved, this means there are things without which you will not be saved. Faith is the primary thing, but true faith is a grasp of the enormity of what God has done for us in Christ. And that requires that we forgive our brethren. So let me state this as clearly as I possibly can. God will not forgive your lack of forgiveness. I mean, that's what Jesus says in verse 35. My heavenly Father will not forgive you. He will treat you like he treated this first servant if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This doesn't mean you're saved by works, but it means you're not saved without them. And the, one of the chief works that shows you're saved is forgiveness. And so... Do you have anyone you have not forgiven? It's important that you not think that this will be overlooked. Our response to offenses, real hard offenses, real affronts 
is a tool of self-diagnosis. It's not ultimately about how, um, how difficult, say, the other person is. It's a tool for your own soul. It's a barometer. Your destiny is tied up with your response in forgiving one another. Notice, this is not formal, at-a-distance forgiveness either. Jesus says to forgive from the heart. He's not going to let you remain in some safe, cold distance, keeping the offender at bay for some slight offense from seven years ago, which the church is full of people who are excellent at this. They have learned to navigate around the people they don't really like. They are very good at avoiding them. It's not that they haven't forgiven them, if you ask them. Oh, no, no, I've got, I got no problem with Joe or Jill. Just don't want anything to do with them, but I've got no problem with them. I maneuver. I keep the distance. Jesus says that's not good enough. You have to forgive your brother from the heart. He requires reconciliation. You know, there are no commands in the Bible that say something like this. Show mercy with moderation. God in Jesus has lavished pardon on us for all of our heinous sins. Let us imitate him and forgive one another from the heart. Our salvation depends on it. Amen.